0: Good morning, LifePoint Church. And if you are watching online, good morning to you, too. We're glad that you have joined us. Glad to be here in the house of the Lord with you this morning. I'd like to begin with a little shout-out for the folks that I work with each week. In and out in the back, our Kids Life volunteer team. Love those guys back there. And uh, they love your kids and uh, lead them in the way of God's Word every week, and I just love being a part of that team. And we are always looking for more folks. If that's something you would uh, enjoy considering, I would love to visit with you about that. And we want folks that love God and love children and love God's Word, and that's probably most of us. So let me know if that's something that we can visit with you about. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I'd invite you to stand, and I'd like us to read some scripture. It's not our passage today, but it's very applicable. And so would you join me if you are able? We want to read Psalm 1 together. Let's begin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, in the seat of scoffers. But his delight nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked of the wicked will perish. Thank you. That is God's word. Have a seat, please. And we'll begin with a word of prayer. Let me pray for our time together. Thank you, God, for your word, the word of God. And uh, it's quite a gift that you've given to us. God, you use it in amazing ways it's living and active sharper than any two-edged sword it has this way of coming right to the heart of the matter of our heart so we thank you for our time together today as we get to talk about it together as um, brothers and sisters in Christ as your your family here on 26th Avenue and uh, we love our time together each week and uh, ask you to pour out your your spirit's blessing on this time together in Jesus name amen I'm also loving spring and the sun breaks that come with it. Sunny breaks. They're awesome. Even if it happens to be raining, this is what I think. I go, even if it happens to be raining, there's the hope. There's the hope that the sun could break through. Maybe, just possibly. Kinda, sorta, hopefully, you know? And it gives a person hope. Just saying. I get to go on a lot of walks in the morning and I love seeing the, the change that comes over our neighborhood. And this week is Heather Blossom Week. Even on the way over here, I saw this whole front yard, the whole bank of Heather Blossoms. It was really, really nice. Crocuses have been up a little bit longer. This was a great week for daffodils. And I even saw some hyacinths starting to come up. And I keep track of these things because my wife loves gardening too. And we just kind of root on the flowers in our yard coming up this kind of year. So... Um, It has something to do, though, with what we're talking about today, and it got me thinking uh, back to a little poem that I wrote for my mom a number of years ago, and it's going to get us started this morning. Uh, It's called A Million Miracles. Just listen. It doesn't take long. It'll get us started. A single seed fell to the ground, making a sound only an ant could hear. It settled in the soil, and as sad as it was, it seemed the end of the story was near. But with a miraculous move, that sensational seed split open from bottom to top. It sent its roots down and in spectacular fashion shot its shoot straight up. I suppose there's a seed of some sort that began every flower and bush and tree. And right there amid soil, sunshine, and rain, A million miracles grow, it seems to me. Our passage today is Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42. And in that passage, we see that an angel spoke a word to the apostles, a word from the throne room of God, okay? And this is what the angel said to the apostles, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words Of this life. And I stopped at, as I saw that phrase, the words of this life. I love that. It reminded me what Jesus said when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I think of that angel message and I think the words of life. Jesus is the word of life. He's the message. No, of life. He's that message of transformation, that message of salvation. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, says, the thief comes to kill, sorry, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I looked at this, it was a curious phrase to me, this Jesus life. I looked at one, what one commentator said about it, and this is what they said, and The Believer's Bible Commentary said it is not just a creed or a set of doctrines, but a life. The resurrection life of the Lord Jesus imparted to all who trust him. So it's a great time of year to think about this life-giving effect of the message of Jesus It's transformative. It's like when a seed falls to the ground and dies, but that's not the end. It's just the beginning. And even more than the life that comes from a buried seed, this transformative effect of the gospel message of Jesus really, really is miraculous. So we're going to take some time this morning to think about this uh, before we dive into our passage. in So we're going to look at how the gospel message landed on some religious leaders. We're going to look at how the gospel message landed on the disciples. But before we get that far, I'd like us to consider how that message lands on you and me. And Jesus taught a parable, and I'd like just to refresh our minds what this parable is. It's the parable of a sower. It's in Matthew 13. Listen as I read along Uh, this passage. Jesus shared, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I was in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus said that the seed was the word of the kingdom. The seed lands on four different types of soils, four different types of people. Jesus described these people later on in the chapter, uh, verses 18 to 23. First, the hard soil. The hard soil along the path. These are people where the word never even takes root. The rocky ground. These are people where spiritual life begins to grow, but it's scorched because of the lack of the depth of soil. The ground with thorns. These are the people where spiritual life begins to grow, but is choked out, overcome by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Then the good soil. This is the person who hears and understands the word of the kingdom and fruit comes. Of it. Fruit grows and multiplies, and the reach expands exponentially. Two questions for you guys, two questions for us all. Which soil best represents you where you're sitting here this morning? And the second question I like better, which soil would you like to have represent you this morning? The reason I ask those questions is because they were asked of me many, many years ago. I grew up in an unbelieving home. I love my home. My family is just awesome. But they were, it was an unbelieving home. But as a teenager, some of my teenager friends invited me to youth group. And so thank you, Lord, for teenagers. Amen? Amen. 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 Yes, amen. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of it. Never mind. Anyway. So... At that point in my life, I'd never read the Bible, not a page. I'd never been to church, not once. But I was invited by a friend to a youth group. And that very initial first exposure to my heart was this parable, the parable of the sower. And there's a gentleman that uh, shared Jesus' parable of the sower that night, and he asked those questions of me. Because which soil best represents your life? Which soil would you like to have represent your life? And I said to myself, and it wasn't a prayer because I didn't know the Lord. <laughs> so I said to myself, but I think God was listening. I said, I want to be the good soil. And here I am all these years later, and I would still answer the question the same way. I want to be the good soil. And so do you desire that your life... Be the kind of life where your heart is soft enough, where the word of God lands on you, and there's fruit that comes from your life that God can bring and even multiply. Back in our study in the book of Acts, we're picking up where Pastor Jim left off last week. We are in Acts chapter 5. The message of Jesus and the seeds of the gospel are going out, and they're bearing fruit number of weeks ago, we looked at the uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and a humble fisherman who, I think we think of him as a friend by now, don't we? <laughs> a humble fisherman by the name of Peter, whose life had been transformed by this message. He was able to stand up in the middle of Jerusalem. He spoke the message of Jesus with great boldness, and the Bible says 3,000 People said yes to Jesus that day. Well, the next chapter, chapter 3, Peter again, and this time accompanied by John, coming up to the temple, met a man who had never walked in all his 40 years, and by the power of Jesus and in Jesus' name, he was healed. And this caused quite a stir, it counted a lot of attention. It gave Peter again the opportunity to speak up and tell and share the message of Jesus with all who were there that day. All who who were there that day, and 5,000 people said yes to Jesus. Last week, in uh, the passage just prior to ours, Pastor Jim shared um, verse 14. Let's review. Look at this. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And this is the setting for today's passage. Because of these events leading up to this time, the apostles' poll numbers, I like to think of it this way, they were going up, up, up. They, the poll numbers were going way up for these guys. Why? Because they were popular because they were faithful to the message of Jesus, and the message of Jesus was gaining popularity The message of Jesus was not limited to pointing people to the guilt of their sin. The message led them to turn to God for the forgiveness of their sin. In addition, people's life needs were being met and addressed in very practical ways. Last week, uh, the passage Jim shared, they were lining the streets of Jerusalem with cots and mats and they were bringing their the sick um, to be healed. And they were all, say all, all were healed. Earlier in Acts chapter 5, we learned about the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The result of that was great fear had come over the church, a godly fear surrounding those events. And so... I wonder, (laughs) I wonder, I'm just wondering if the hypocrisy of the church was at an all-time low in direct response to that fear of the Lord that had come over them. Just wondering. But that's the setting for today's passage. The power of God is on display, but it's accompanied by this authentic, life-giving message of Jesus the passage we're about to look at uh, mentions some of the religious leaders that held positions of authority in the Jewish council, it's called. Also, the council is referred into our passage today as the Senate in this passage. Also, uh, as the Sanhedrin, perhaps more familiar to us, in other passages. Uh, this was a body that served as the administrative authority for the Jewish people. It established laws, it had the power to enforce those laws, it included some folks that we'll be familiar with, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, the families of influential family members of the priests and scribes. So we're going to track the reaction, how did the Jesus message fall on two groups, the religious leaders of that day in the council, and of course, we'll look at um The apostles and the disciples, how did the message land on them? My hope is that we will have a takeaway that is personal for us. The takeaway would be, I hope, that my heart would be responsive, that my heart will be a good soil as we respond to the message of this life. So first, how did the religious leaders respond? I see three stages in our passage today of how that happened. Okay. Um, stage one, Jerusalem, we know this. We've referred to it already today. Je- Jerusalem was, was buzzing. People were coming from the surrounding areas, surrounding towns, and they were coming and they were laying those who were sick on their cots in the streets because because they had heard the message of jesus they had heard and so they came why would they come at the uh, when they heard about this message what would make them want to come all that way okay i thought of three things one the message was life giving the gospel offered forgiveness of sins to you it was practical they were all healed of sickness. And whatever malady they had, they were healed. Talk about practical. Plus, I think, I'm just throwing this one in there, I think the message was cool. I think that's why they came. And I was thinking about this. So let's say it's you, or let's say it's me. And we have our son is sick, or our friend, or our mom. And we've tried to help them, and it's nothing. That, nothing that we do is working. But we hear about the power of Jesus. And so we go, come on, we're going to go to King Solomon's Boulevard. And I just made that up. I don't know if there really was a King Solomon's Boulevard. But we're going to get on the sunny side of the street. And we have to listen to last week's past message if you want to know why it's the sunny side of King Solomon's Boulevard. But but come. And then there you are waiting Then the apostles of Jesus stroll by, and the next thing you know, your loved one has been healed. And I just think it's worth thinking about the mood, the vibe that this may have caused in Jerusalem. And so you're a traveler, and you arrive with your friend or your loved one, and they're in pain or they're sick or they're desperate, or you're just holding on to this little sliver of hope. And then suddenly, everything has changed. Suddenly, all of that turns into dancing. And it turns into shouts of praise and thanks and hugs all around and tears of joy all up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And that's what I call urban renewal. So how did they respond, these priests and those on the council, To this life-giving, practical, and cool message of Jesus in verse 17, it says that they were filled with jealousy. Council was envious, jealous of the popularity of the apostles. I guess that makes sense. What the apostles were enjoying was what the council members were wanting themselves. But that is an emotional reaction. It's not a substantive consideration of the message. They were leaders in positions of power, and they switched from considering what was going on to emotionally uh, switching to a damage control situation Um, it was like they wanted to uh, isolate and contain the problem. Call it a containment strategy. Containment strategy. They, The apostles called it prison. (laughs) They said, we are going to arrest them and put them in jail, and they will be contained and isolated. And if your problem is contained and isolated, Theoretically, it no longer is a problem. But this time it was not just Peter and John. It was all the apostles. All the apostles were taken to prison. Let's think of the response of these religious leaders. It was uh, showing a spiritual disconnect to this life-giving message. People all over Jerusalem were responding to this life-giving message. But somehow for the hearts of the council, it wasn't, it couldn't penetrate. It's hard to know what's going on in their heart at the heart level. But I think back to the parable of the sower. It's like that seed that fell on the ground and the bird came and doubled it up for lunch. So that was stage one, this this moon, this setting in Jerusalem. Stage two, something happened. The religious leaders never saw coming. I call it the divine intervention. All the apostles were in prison. That was the isolate and containment strategy. But the council assembled the next morning, and they sent for the prisoners. And I just want to read what happened. This is in um, Acts five nineteen to 24. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate, of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported. <clears throat> we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, <clears throat> we we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple And the chief priests heard these words. They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. What would this come to? So we feel for the guards. They're just doing their jobs. They're just standing guard over empty prison cells, right? Okay, the text says that the angel opened the doors and brought them out. So the, it says that the guards were there beforehand, the guards were there after, so I'm just assuming that the guards were there during the prison break, the angelic prison break, and, and I'm thinking they must have had some divine haze or some stupor or some zombie zoned out type thing happening to them. But um, I also picture these these are Jesus followers, friendly, love your neighbor folks, And so as they're going out, they're saying, thank you, guards. Shalom. Have a nice day, you know. And so out they went. The angel had opened the prison doors, but then when they came, the doors were locked. And so the angel picked the lock. And then when they were done, he locked it back up. And then so that they would have to open the locks before to look. And I think the whole thing is that the angels were messing with their minds. I think that's what happened. That explains it. The idea, though, is that this was a miracle that happened. There were miracles all over Jerusalem. There were miracles left and right. And this was a miracle. It was a divine intervention because there was no other explanation for why that would happen. Except that God was there and God accomplished it. So how did the priests respond to this angelic prison break? How did they respond to this divine intervention? Verse 24 tells us that they were greatly perplexed. They wondered what this would come to. To me, there's a little hope here, greatly perplexed. I think it's moving in the right direction away from filled with jealousy. So that's hopeful. Hopeful. But for you or me or someone, this could have been, I would say this should have been, the aha moment. But for the religious leaders, all we can gather is that they assume that their containment strategy didn't work, so we need a new strategy. They found the apostles at the temple teaching the people about the words of life just as the angel had commanded them to do, and it says in verse twenty six they brought them in without force, and then they rebuked them <laughs> so i'll summarize the what this some what the uh the council said one you did not obey our directive, two you intend to blame us for the death of your leader, and it made me think of verse uh, chapter four verse twenty when Peter and John were pretty clear. They said, they cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Council, you say what you want, but we got to keep speaking what we have seen and heard. It should have come as no surprise to the council that they would disregard the council's directive. But again, they weren't dealing with the substance of what was going on the message of Jesus, the changed lives all over Jerusalem, the miracles, the divine intervention that morning, it was about them. It was, you didn't obey us. You are trying to blame us. It seems it all came back to their control as leaders or, more likely, their fear of losing control. So the, the divine intervention prison break. It was met with hardness of heart. And uh, this is how I, I wrote it down. Sometimes I get carried away, like this time. I go, it was like the Sanhedrin-sized sack of seeds that spilled on the streets of Jerusalem that a flock of birds discovered and scarfed down for lunch. I do overthink these things. Stage three. The council thought the apostles would be their captive audience, quite literally captive audience but what happens when the captive audience escapes okay in a little twist of fate here it was the leaders themselves on the council that became the captive audience because the apostles all of them were there and they weren't about to let this opportunity to respond to the council's rebuke go unanswered and so they were uh not just peter and john um but all the apostles, it was Peter and John, however, it was their second opportunity to speak before the council. And uh, this time, again, it was with great boldness. They were doing just as the angel had instructed them to do, to speak the words of this life. But this time it was a direct, uh, tailor-made message for those who are on the council. And this is what they said. Verse 29 to 32, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you kill by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So how did the council respond to the message of Jesus that was tailor-made, directly given to them? Verse 33 tells us they were enraged. They wanted to kill the apostles. That seems disproportionate. Why the emotional rage? And I think a few things in the passage we just read help us understand why They were so emotionally reactive to what they said. Look at this one. Whom you killed. It may not have been all that long ago that Peter and John were there the first time uh, before the council. Refresh our memories back in Acts 4.10. This is what they said. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. The council, I think, Maybe this was a sensitive issue. they had just said, "And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us and then the apostles had just said, "The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed." <laughs> so these were the law enforcers. these were the uh, these were the council members who were responsible to keep the law. I wonder if they started feeling accused of being lawbreakers. And maybe that ended up um, putting them uh backing them into a corner where a, a person of power is going to respond with aggression uh if they're feeling like their position is threatened. Okay, maybe that is somewhat gives us insight. There's another thing I thought we'd look at. The second aspect is the word leader. I thought this was pretty cool. Peter and the apostles said, "God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins." The word leader turns out is the same word we saw a couple chapters ago in chapter three, verse thir- verse fifteen. Peter is at uh, Solomon's portico speaking to the people that were gathered that had heard about the lame man being healed and he said that uh this in chapter 3 verse 15 you killed the author of life i was thinking about that what if that was you and they're saying you killed the author of life from a historical perspective how does how does history treat you if you're the one that killed the author of life. And you know you're having a bad day when you realize that it was you that killed the author author of life. All right. The third thing I thought would be good to look at is uh, Peter and the apostles mention of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, they said, God exalted him at his right hand and the Holy Spirit. We are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit. Sounds like another way of saying, God is on our side. Whose side are you on? And there's this, as we will track through the book of Acts in the weeks to come, there's this residual impact on the life of Jesus that doesn't go away. Okay. They are reacting to something that had already happened, but it's like they can't forget it. They can't forget it. It's like caught in their throat or something like that. We're going to see that as we go on in the book of Acts as well. So it's hard to know what's going on really in the hearts and minds of these religious leaders, but I think it's telling. They're they're this emotional, um, enraged reaction. They wanted to kill the apostles. They wanted the problem to go away. The apostles were the problem, and they wanted it all just to go away. What was their coping strategy? It was aggression rather than dialogue, rather than exchange of thought. It was just this emotional, reactive aggression. Stepping back from the passage just a little bit, uh, this is understandable in a way as we represent Jesus in our culture. Sometimes this we will meet up with an aggression. And um, I thought about that a little bit Um the Gospel really very much can back a person into a corner because and uh, because it it uh, deals with heart issues of sin, so think of it as in that way you know, we're, the message deals with the most sensitive area of a person and if they are feeling they're feeling uh, uh, guilt. Uh, or attacked in that most sensitive area, they may well come out swinging like the council. But on the other hand, there's this invitation that the apostles gave to the council. So it was not the only reaction. They could have accepted the invitation. It was to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The message was of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and yet that doesn't come from a seed on the hard soil. It comes from the good soil. That's a good soil response of humility. So really it depends on the soil of a person's heart. So this response that the apostles gave to the rebuke of the the council led to another intervention of sorts, but this time it was from their own ranks a man named Gamaliel, he was a Pharisee. And it was like God used Gamaliel to talk his colleagues back from the ledge. The key point is verse 39, where Gamaliel says, you might even be found opposing God. And so if this Jesus movement was Gamaliel's argument, If this Jesus movement was not from God, it would soon find its way into the dustbin of history. But if it is from God, trust me, Gamaliel may have said, trust me, you don't want to end up on the wrong side of God. The wrong side of history is bad. The wrong side of God is worse for those guys. So perhaps Gamaliel maybe had just heard what the apostle said, he said, we are witnesses and so is the Holy Spirit. And uh, that made him think, perhaps that's what made him think, hey, you don't want to be on the wrong side of God, not on this issue. And nobody, not even on the council, wanted to be found opposing God. So they took Gamaliel's advice and the council let the apostles go but not before beating them and telling them not to speak in the name of Jesus because they weren't bitter or anything. So the religious leaders had the opportunity to respond to the message as much as anyone in Jerusalem had done. They, their response was more emotional reaction, not substantive consideration. It didn't lead to a change of heart, only a change of strategy. The message of Jesus has a way of coming right at the heart, doesn't it? And it was all they could do to bat it away. They thought that they had dealt with this Jesus message once for all when Jesus was crucified back at Passover. They were looking back and thought of it, hey, back at Passover, we thought we were done with this. But just like Jesus, the message of Jesus is the message of life, and it doesn't go away. (laughs) It's the message of resurrection. So, let's look at the apostles. How did they respond to these words of this life? This group of Jesus followers, as unlikely a group as groups go, I'm thinking some fishermen. There was a tax collector we know. There was a zealot. Some were driven by their doubts. Some were full of faith. Some were impulsive. Some, I'm thinking, were... Just quiet, right? It seemed particularly annoying to the council. Back in chapter 4, verse 13, they refer to them as common men. Well, it was these common men that had seen with their eyes and heard with their ears the message of Jesus in person, up close, personal. And what was their response? They believed. Not complicated. Their response was, they believed. And that belief led to a change and a transformed life. Knowing Jesus reoriented their lives, such that when they were arrested, it didn't seem altogether too much to faze them, because this truth had lodged deep in their heart. They were we just read, they were hauled before the legal authorities. Didn't seem to matter. The passage we just read really could have put them in danger of their lives, and they were beaten. How did they respond? They rejoiced. Look at this verse, verse 42. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So when the gospel seed fell on the hearts of the disciples, it fell onto good soil, that multiplied 30, 60, 100 fold. So now we come to ask the question, what needs to happen for us? I'm suggesting that we expand this message of the gospel, which may well have been the, the message of this life. Probably refers directly to the salvation message that needed to go out through all Jerusalem. I'm suggesting we expand this to include the principle of God's word and the truth we find there. So I'm going to suggest we need to allow God's words of truth to fall on the good soil of our heart. We could have this selfish orientation where we're concerned with being right, like the council, concerned perhaps with what others think, but instead I would encourage us to think, what we really need is our hearts to be thirsty for the Jesus life. We need hearts that submit to God's wisdom and submit to God's ways. Is it possible to work the soil of your heart? You can work the soil in your garden, but can you work the soil in your heart? Is there a way to produce good soil? I think if we've never yielded initially in faith to Jesus, that's the first step. The words of this life, it's the message of the gospel. It's the message of salvation. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become a new creation, Paul said. second Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But after that initial decision of faith, notice that the disciples... And I'm suggesting this is like working the soil. If we uh, take a lesson from the disciples, they decided to follow. They decided to follow Jesus. They saw, and they listened. Yeah, they made mistakes. We get uh, the idea that they learn from their mistakes under the watchful care of Jesus, their good shepherd. They learn to obey. They and to step out on faith. It was like they followed their rabbi, but then somewhere along the way, their teacher, their rabbi, turned into the Lord. They followed Jesus also alongside one another. I think these are helpful ideas in how we can cultivate the garden of our heart. We need to step out of faith. We need to learn obedience. We need to do that all alongside one another as we follow Jesus together down this Jesus road. What if we've already said yes to Jesus? I would suggest we need to tend our hearts as we would a garden. We need to pay attention to the soil of our heart. We need to do battle against the weeds and the pests. I think we'll find it hard to thrive in our walk with Christ unless we do tend our heart. We are intentional to be nourished by the truth of God's word. Step out in faith. We follow. We obey as God gives us grace to do so. As we all are on this Jesus road together. So I keep going like this because Pastor Jim's pulpit won't fit my Bible right here. So I am glad this little table is right here. Why is the Bible, why is the truth we find there such a big deal? Here's what came to my mind. We live in a stressed out, freaked out world, but we are prone to be conformed to the image of this world. Let's remember what happens, what what it says in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, and I would add, the stressed out, freaked out world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Right there. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Right there. The pressure to conform to the world's ways is in direct competition to the spirit life in our hearts. We need the transformation at the heart level. So we need to connect with the life-giving truth because everything else can end up being very life-depleting. We need the words of life, and we've got them right here. The words of the gospel, the words of the truth of God's word, right here. How does the message fall on you this morning? The, the word of the kingdom, how does it fall on your hearts and mind? Life-giving message of Jesus can bounce right off a person's heart and not penetrate at all. The evidence of life can be all around us. There can be divine interventions. There can be a tailor-made message right for you. And it can all bounce right off. In Jesus' parable, it depends on the soil. For you and I, it really depends on the condition of our heart So I don't think it's a one and done. I think this this soft heart uh, before God is a decision, um, a good soil life decision, an ongoing day-by-day process of saying yes over and over again to God's word and the authority of his word in my heart, in my life. So how does that land on you today? In a way, it reminds me of the guards we left them uh at the council, scratching their head, wondering how that all happened that the doors were locked, and they were gone, and they were trying to make sense of it and they were all it was all very perplexing. But I'm thinking of those guys because um in the end, they were guarding nothing, all that time and energy expended to guard what turned out to be nothing. At all in I just think it would be a tragedy if we were to put a padlock on the lock and expend all sorts of energy and inks to stand guard over something that in the end turns out to be nothing if we can only guard one thing the Bible says what it should be proverbs 4:23 says watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of of life, so i'm going to suggest that, as awesome as it is to come together as a church family each week under the authority of god 's word together, this needs to be a daily rhythm in each of our hearts as we look to god 's word each day. let us let the words of this life, this truth reorient us, refresh our hearts and minds so that we can remember our part in the story of God's kingdom that he is telling. We remember who we are in Jesus. And I want to end this way. Our faith is in Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We've been adopted into God's forever family as his sons and daughters. God is our loving heavenly father. He is God almighty. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He's the Redeemer. He is our Redeemer. We are new creations. The old life has passed away, and the new life has come. And the new life that comes when we believe is a miracle. Let me pray for us, and we're done. Thank you, God, for this word of life, this Jesus message, this life-transforming life transforming power of jesus in the heart of somebody who believes and god help us be an encouragement to each other to believe to spend time in your word to let it pour over us like spring rains that you would find our hearts humble before you that we would be receptive to your word on a day-by-day basis god thanks so much for pastor jim and his His diligence to bring us the word of truth each week, week in and week out. We pray for him in that ministry that he has and takes so seriously. But that we also would be uh, willing to share this gospel message with those in our community, with those in our circle of influence, that you give us boldness like the disciples and the apostles had. So God, we thank you for our time together today. We love being together with God's people. And uh, we love it that uh, Jesus is the head of the church. And Lord, we um, thank you for being here with us today. We pray it all in Jesus' good name. Amen.